0: Amen. It's so good to see all of you here tonight. Great to have you. James, James chapter 1 tonight. By way of introduction, as you read and, and study the book of James yourself, I want you to really, as you're doing that, always keep in mind from here on out, this is the Lord's brother who wrote this. So he grew up with Jesus in that same home of Mary and Joseph. And I want you to read it then in light of how did being the brother of Jesus and growing up with Jesus in his home, how did that maybe shape the message that he has for us and how he writes his letter and and even what he writes about. And one of the other things I'd like to say at the very beginning is that James is a great example that no human being ever starts at zero with God. I hope that will be an encouragement to you. Maybe right now you have a family member, a friend, a coworker, somebody that you're praying for to come to the Lord and to know the Lord and whatever. And, and I mean, when you think about James, the Bible tells us that James, as well as Jesus's other brothers and sisters, did not come to believe in him and have faith in him until after he rose from the dead, and they saw the resurrected Jesus. So they weren't believers in Jesus the whole time Jesus was, you know, they were growing up together as brothers and sisters in that home, and yet, just by the fact that Jesus was in that home, and his presence was there, and he lived the way he did, that that was making an impression upon his brothers and sisters. And so when James and, and Jesus's other brothers and sisters finally came to faith in Christ, they weren't starting from zero. You think about then all the experiences and all the conversations and all the things that they had had previous to their coming to faith that they could draw from that just was sort of an addition, if you will, to now the faith and the foundation of that faith that they were building on, you see. So I want that to be an encouragement to you because you may be around those that you're trying to, you know, influence and whatever, and don't think that it's not making some kind of a difference or some kind of impression. You know, just as we sang, you know, God's always working. God's always moving. He's the way maker. And, and it, you know, it, it's not fruitless. It's not purposeless. It's never a waste of time, you see. So that's one thing. The second thing is, and we're going to obviously get into that, That the main thing we're going to look at tonight in the first few verses of James is that James wants to talk to us about the perspective that God's people should have when it comes to trials coming into our life. And again, I want you to think about that in light of James and even Jesus and Mary and Joseph and that family. They, they went through trials. Just because Jesus was in the home didn't mean everything was okay. They had their kind of trials. I mean, the Bible alludes to the fact that because Jesus was born the way he was, you know, virgin birth and all of that, and that many never bought into that, that basically for the rest of his life and the whole time that Mary and Joseph were alive on earth, there was always sort of that stigma, that cloud that hung over them. Like, nah, that that was, you yeah, know, that's just a bunch of malarkey, you know. And, and I'm sure that that weighed on them the whole time that they were here on earth. That affected the family dynamic a little bit, you know. Yeah, our, our older brother, he he wasn't really born of a of an earthly father. Yeah, right, you know. So even they didn't, his brothers and sisters obviously believe that story, probably. Then there's the idea that we know from the scriptures that Joseph and Mary were not well-to-do people. They they were not wealthy. Their sacrifice that they made for Jesus in the temple was was. A provision that God made for sort of the poorest of the poor in that day. So, so they grew up in a large family, but didn't have a lot. So there's that trial, you know, of always maybe wondering, do we have enough food? Do we have enough provision? Obviously, God always provided, but they never had a lot of extra, if you will. So there's that trial. And these are just the ones that we know of, in a sense, from scripture. And then there's Joseph who we know, based upon silence and not being around, that he probably died at a very young age. Uh, You know, Jesus even at the cross looked down at John and basically, you know, gave his mother, Mary, into John's care. Well, why would he do that? Because he was now the oldest. Joseph wasn't around anymore. So that meant that the head of the household died at a very early age, which also then would have added to the trials that this family would have went through, you see, in their life. So they had plenty of trials. So when James is talking to us about our perspective on trials and how to handle trials, this isn't coming from somebody who doesn't know what it's like to go through hard times in his life. Even after he came to Christ, He became one of the leaders of the early church. He became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He became one of the leaders of the early church that led them through a tremendous time of tension and transition from the Old Testament sacrificial system that God was doing away with in Jesus Christ and then transitioning that to fully the church, if you will. He was there doing all that. And because of his stance for Jesus Christ... He became a martyr. And history tells us that the same religious leaders that sort of you know, stirred the Romans up to put Jesus to death also stirred up the Roman authorities to put James to death and that James died a martyr sometime in the early 60s A.D., In fact, what we know because of that, and because James does not mention the destruction of Jerusalem or the temple in 70 AD, that James is probably, I wouldn't, you know, this is not something I would be dogmatic about, but James was probably the very first book written in the New Testament, even before the Gospels, even before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, James was probably the very first book that was written in what we call today the New Testament. So let's get into it tonight. I want you to follow along with me as I just read the first eight verses. From James. And notice he doesn't play the brother card. No. He says, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, simply Jewish believers who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Now, that's specifically his audience, but obviously we know for the last 2,000 years, we Gentile believers can gain as much out of this book as Jewish believers do. But James was stirred by the Lord to specifically write this message to Jewish believers. Why? Well, because Jewish believers in the first century would have had to endure more trials than Gentile believers, right? because the temple was still there, and the sacrificial system was still going, and there was still that pull to always go back to the temple sacrifices rather than just resting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if a Jew did say that they believed in Jesus as their Messiah, they would be severely persecuted and ostracized by their family and friends. They, they would maybe lose everything. So that's, I think, another reason why James specifically wrote this book to the Jews. He says, Greetings, my brothers and sisters. Consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. But if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without reprimand, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. If I had to say, what is sort of the theme of the entire book, I would say James is really wanting to talk to us about what is it that we truly value. What's our highest values in life? Why? Because our values determine our evaluations. Let me repeat that, because you'll hear me say that throughout this study. Our values determine our evaluations. For instance, when it comes to trials, and we're going to get into this in just a moment, If I value comfort over character, then when a trial comes into my life, I'm going to be upset about it because I value my comfort more than I do my character. But if I value my character and the building of my character and the growing of my character more than I do my personal comfort, then I will evaluate my trials differently. What we value always colors our evaluations of things, how we look at things, what is our perspective. And so that's why James starts out in verse 2 with this tremendous message. He says, my brothers and sisters. Yes, Jesus was my brother, but now you, through his blood, you are my brothers and sisters. I have another family. I have a spiritual family, and so do we, and I thank God for you, my spiritual family because we're going to get to spend all of eternity together. I know for some of you, you're going, oh, I don't know about that. But But here's a key word first. Consider. Consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Now notice something. James never tells us that the trials themselves are joyful. He never tells us that, because that's not true. The adversity and troubles and things that we go through, they're not joyful. But James isn't telling us to get our joy from the trial. No. He says the joy that we should have, the way we evaluate our trials, is because we know that if we respond to it the way God wants us to respond to, us, we respond to it, and the way he's equipping us to respond to it, it can be spiritually profitable and beneficial for us. It can grow us. It can make us a better, stronger person. That's why we should be joyful, because there's always a purpose behind it. And God can use it in our life. Every every trial, God can use in our life to move us a little bit further along, spiritually speaking. That's why we should be joyful. So let's go back, though, to this word consider. This word is a key word in this passage. It literally means to have as the leading thought in your mind. Now think about that, because we're talking about thinking. It all starts with our thinking, which is why the Bible tells us that you and I, one of the things that we have to grow in, and discipline ourselves in and learn to do is we've got to learn to think. We've got to spend a lot of time evaluating our thinking. What we think about, how we think and all that. It's all, but why. Well, if James says have as the leading thought in your mind joy whenever a trial all of a sudden comes into your life. If you and I aren't learning to do that, if we're not training ourselves to do that and disciplining our mind to think a certain way, then that won't be the leading thought. See that, that, That's again why the Bible tells us we've got to spend a lot of time letting God renew our mind. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2. Why the Bible tells us, though the outward man is perishing, the inner man can be renewed day by day. And God literally wants to come in and begin to renovate the way we think. Because how we think and how we evaluate things and our perspective on things is huge. If the leading thought in our mind is, oh, woe is me when a trial comes, then we've got to change our thinking. Because somehow we're viewing that as, oh, that's bad. No. God says the trial itself may be not so pleasant, but I can use this and will use this in your life to make you more spiritually mature, to make you more like Jesus Christ. And again, if that's our value, then that should bring us joy. That's why Paul in the book of Philippians says, Think! on these things. It, it, it's a requirement to train ourselves for godliness and, and to really focus on our thinking. I think as Christians, we don't spend enough time thinking about our thinking. <laughs> because it takes work. It takes discipline to train our minds to sort of push out all, as I say a lot of times, the stinking thinking, the the stuff that doesn't line up with God or his word, and to replace it with what I should think about, what is true, and, and to then so train my mind, so discipline my mind in thinking, that when things happen, whether I see them coming or not, my mind automatically goes to where it should. Consider, that's the leading thought. The first thing that comes into our mind. I mean, you and I could play this out. I mean, I could, we could teach just on this tonight. Because you and I have to do that in every area of our life. Say somebody says something painful to us. How are we going to respond? Leading thought. Obviously, the first thought may be, I'm going to slug them. But we've got, that's where our, we've got to train, discipline, think through, ask God to help renew and renovate our thinking. Consider spending time considering it. Nothing but joy. Again, The joy here is simply the cause or occasion of joy which comes from what the trial, if we respond to it the way, again, God equips us to and wants us to, what it produces, the effect, the results of this trial. Now, notice something else here. He says, when you fall, into all sorts of trials. And that's a very descriptive word, too. It literally means to be surrounded or encompassed. It's it's almost like I just fell in a hole that I didn't see. And sometimes that's the way trials are. It's like, it doesn't matter where I look. There doesn't seem to be a way out. It's like I'm totally surrounded and encompassed by this trial. It's it's on every side of me. But again, he says... Consider it joy. Why? Because there's this understanding, we're going to get to that, that God is going to use this in a profitable and beneficial way in my life. And I'm going to be better because of it. Because in verse 3, he says, because you know, you know. Do we know? Do we know that trials can be beneficial and profitable? Is is do we really know that? It goes back again to our thinking and our mind and what by the way, this word know is something that you and I learn from becoming more acquainted with God. I truly come to know things when I get more acquainted with God, which means the more time I spend with God in worship, in the Word, in prayer, in just hanging out with Him, the more acquainted I get with God, the more I truly know that if God has allowed this trial to come into my life, and somehow I feel like I'm surrounded and encompassed by this thing, whatever it is, that I can still say, God, I am filled with your joy, your inner sense of of sufficiency that only comes from you, because I know, I know that you're going to see me through it. I know you're going to give me what I need to get through it, and you're going to use this in my life, God, to make me more like Jesus. I know that, you see. I know that. And that's why we want to encourage one another, though, to always keep spending more time with God. Because there's a knowledge that you and I can only get the more time we spend with God, just like we are with each other. How do we get to know each other and know each other's hearts and and what makes one's heart beat and and what one really likes and all of that, except we really get to spend time with them and get to know them. And then we really know them. And, And even on a human level, there's then certain people that we know by knowing them so well that we can totally trust them or would trust them. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't totally trust any human being, only God, but, but we feel like we can trust them. Why? Because we know them. Well, think about that even more than with God. The more I know him and become acquainted with him, the more I know that even in trials, if this is what he has told me, then I know this is going to be good. Not the trial's good, But what God's gonna produce or bring out of it in my life is gonna be good. Because He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Testing. In a sense, our faith, which I said before we worship tonight, is really our expression of our confidence in God and our spiritual convictions and who we believe God to be. They will be tested. They just will be. And sometimes trials are the best test of our faith. Do we really believe the promises of God? Do we really know God? Do we really believe that these things can be beneficial or profitable in some way? They're tested. And can I say this too? The longer a trial goes, the more prolonged or protracted a trial is. That's a test too because sometimes you and I can deal with something if it's short-term, but if it starts to drag out over weeks and months and maybe years, that's a test. Think of people like Joseph, you know, who spent years in prison, you know, or others in the Bible. The testing of our faith. Faith will be tested. That's part of our life. Because life will test our convictions about our God and our confidence in God. It just will. And you and I, as Christians, are going through some of that right now in some form. Each of us, in some way, our faith in God is being tested. What do we really believe about God? You see, it's like I think about Habakkuk. When he's complaining to God, like, God, where are you? We are your people. We're pouring out our hearts to you. And God says, oh, I'm right here. In fact, he says, I'm going to tell you something that's going to make your head swim. And Habakkuk's like waiting, like, well, what is it? God says, I'm going to raise up your enemies to run you guys, overrun you guys. Habakkuk's like, well, that's not what I was expecting you to say or do. And Habakkuk's faith was being tested there, even by God in his response to Habakkuk, his prophet. Wait a minute, you're going to raise up our enemy to come through and overrun us? Yeah, because God said, that's what I need to do because you, you, you as, a, as a people, as a nation, you've turned your back on me. And the way back to me is this way. Hmm. Something for us to consider Your faith, if you respond to it when you're tested, when the heat is turned up in your life, and in a sense your faith is now found in a furnace and it's getting really hot, because that's really what the word testing means. It was a word that was used to uh, assess the quality of metals in Bible times. They would put the coins or the metals in fire to see Was this coin pure? Was it genuine? Was it the real deal? Or was it just a fake? Was it counterfeit? So same principle, see? So when our faith is tested, in a sense, it goes into the fire to show what's there. But notice what James says. As we're going through this, and if we're responding properly, our faith can be strengthened, and it can produce endurance in our life, which is simply a growing spiritual stamina and staying power. In other words, it makes us stronger. When you and I respond to a trial in God's way, it gives us this supernatural stamina and staying power to even be a stronger individual than we were before the trial, you see. And God wants to build that stamina and spiritual staying power and stick to into our lives because he knows we need it because life is going to be full of trials and challenges and obstacles, and we've got the world and the flesh and the devil working against us, and we're going to need endurance. Otherwise, we're just going to get so overwhelmed and so frustrated that we're just going to throw up our hands and say, I give up. God says, I can't have my people give up. If we faint in the day of adversity, God says, your strength is small. I don't want your strength to be small. I want you in the day of adversity to be able to walk through those days holding your head up high, confident in who I am, confident in what I can do for you, that I will bring you through the trial and you'll be even better on the other side of the trial than you were going in. Think of Job. Think of so many characters from the Bible that are examples or illustrations of exactly what James is saying. And James, I think, is even probably saying to himself, I'm in this. I see myself in these verses. Because I had to learn to first accept my God and then trust him through the trials that I was going to face in my life. And every time I responded The way I knew God wanted me to, my endurance, my perseverance just continued to build to where then the next time the trial had, I had even greater strength and greater stamina and greater staying power even going into that next trial than I did before the trial. It's almost like an athlete that over time you just keep working out and training and you just build up your strength and stamina to where you can maybe run a little further or run a little faster or just go through the challenges and obstacles a little bit, you know, easier, if you will. God wants to see us spiritually get to that point. So that obviously then reminds us that, you know, God's not sugarcoating anything. Life is going to be hard at times. But if you follow me, you will have everything it takes to thrive and not just survive life. To enjoy life and be able to enjoy it at the highest quality you and I can on earth rather than just to endure as far as just sort of hanging on for dear life and wait until Jesus comes. And then notice, he even goes further. He says, this process of testing... I want you to let it completely work itself out. Verse 4, let endurance have its perfect effect. In other words, don't try to squirm or get out of it. Stay in it, remain under it until God opens the door to get out. Don't try to get out of it yourself. Don't circumvent by wanting to get out of it sooner than God wants you to Stay in it as long as God wants you there. Let it run its course all the way out, you see. Because so often, we're in something, and again, especially if it's prolonged or protracted, we're like, we're just looking for the first exit door. God, get me out of this. You know, and we may even somehow try to get out of it ourselves. We may try to escape it even through unhealthy, unproductive, self-destructive means. But God says, no, no, no. Stay in it. Just sit in it. Because as you sit in it and sit through it, you're letting what I'm doing through that trial take its real effect and really become embedded and planted in you to where It's it's part of you now. Because he says, the positive result will be that you will be perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. And complete, notice, not deficient in anything. In other words, if we respond to our trials properly and we don't circumvent the process that God wants us to go through in these trials, we can achieve another level of spiritual maturity, even better equipped to fulfill our God-given purpose, even more useful to God, more profitable to God, more beneficial to God and to everyone around us. Because now we have even more tools, if you will, in our spiritual tool belt to be able to encourage and support and bless others. Why? Because we went through this, and what we learned and how we grew through it, then when God brings other people into our orbit, if you will, of influence, then God can use our testimony, our life, what we've been through, our witness, to be able to encourage and strengthen them as well, you see. So that's the first part. Let's look at this next part. If anyone is deficient in wisdom, now, that almost makes it sound like, well, some of us are and some of us aren't, but that's not what James is saying. The reason it's worded that way is it's really up to each of us to individually recognize, acknowledge, and admit that we all have a need of wisdom. And we sang about that tonight. Lord, I need you. That's what James is saying. It's not that we all don't, need God's wisdom to navigate trials. We absolutely do. It's just, are we going to individually, personally, come to a place where we acknowledge and admit, God, I need your wisdom in order to navigate the trials of life? Because the word deficient just means someone who's in need. And that's part of learning to to grow and and walk with God is just Admitting, Lord, I need you, and I need your wisdom, especially, Lord, when I'm going through a trial, because God's wisdom is simply the spiritual insight we get to see things from God's perspective, to see things the way God sees them. Not the way we see them, but the way God sees them. That's wisdom. And when you and I are going through tough times, we need to see it from God's perspective rather than from our perspective. Or even from a short-term perspective, which is usually not good, we need to see the long-term. Because God always is working on the eternal end of things, not the short-term temporal end of things. And, And that's where God's wisdom comes into play because then we don't sacrifice the short-term for the long-term, or the long-term for the short-term, excuse me. The decisions and choices we make based upon the wisdom that we're getting from God always allows us to go, what's what's best for the long-term? How would this look through eternity or in eternity, you see? That's God's perspective. And notice the encouragement here. He says... If you have a need of wisdom, and we all do, just ask. Just ask God. You have not because you ask not. Not only do we need to think about our thinking, we have talked about that, the word consider, verse 2, the word know, verse 3, we need to think about our asking. Do you ask God enough And what have you been asking God for lately? Is it wisdom to navigate the trials of life and to see things from God's perspective? Because he says, God will give to all generously, bountifully, holding nothing back. When God gives, he pours it out, just as he did the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'll never forget, I was listening to Nicole talk to somebody one day. and She was talking to him about children, and she says, you realize your children, when they accept Christ, they don't get the junior Holy Spirit. I've never forgotten that. It's like, yeah, you're right. They don't get less of the Holy Spirit. They get all the Holy Spirit, because that's the way God is. He doesn't give us even when he gives like half of it. He gives all to us. So James is saying... God not only wants to give it to you, but when he gives it to you, he will give you all the wisdom you need for that thing. He's not going to go, okay, I'm going to give you part of it now, and then, you know, no, he's going to give it all to us so that we can see it at that moment from his perspective. And he says, oh, by the way, and God won't reprimand you. He won't be upset that we've ever asked him for something. I hope that we can, you know, get that into our thinking. So I'm I'm not going to go to God. I'm not going to ask him for that. God is not upset when we ask him for things, he's our father. He wants us to come to him and ask him for things. So again, I say to you, because God impressed this upon me, Jeff, what are you asking me for right now? And are you asking me enough? Something we all need to think about. But then he says this, but he must ask in faith. Do I really believe what God said? Do I really believe God can do what he said he's going to do? Or do I vacillate, do I waver about the character of God? And not only that, but I think we can also apply this, that James here is also saying, not only do I have doubts about the character of God, but do I have doubts about the fact that I even want God to do this? In other words, i got to check my own heart. Do I really value the things that God values? Do I really want what God wants for me, or do I still want to sort of do my own thing? Something we need to think about. Because he says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed around by the wind. He's obviously giving us a a picture here. Toss back and forth, one way and then another way, hesitating. I'm not sure. He says, Look, verse 7 that person, don't suppose you're going to receive anything from the Lord. Because to receive something from the Lord is not to sit back passively and just say, okay, God, you know, bless me, I dare you type of thing. No, it means to take assertively uh, a hold of something and to be active in grabbing a hold of what God wants to give us. Yes, God is in a sense offering it to us and he's wanting to give it to us, but he wants to see that we want it enough to literally reach out and grab it and take hold of it and pull it in. So that's the next thing. Ask and receive. Let's think about receiving from the Lord. Are you receiving from the Lord everything the Lord wants to give you? Or are you just being sort of passive and just sort of sitting back and just waiting for God to just sort of dump it all without us going after it? Or as we pray and as we ask, we're believing and we're going out there. We're saying, God, I trust you. I believe you. Now I'm going to grab it and bring it in and make it part of my life. That's receiving it. It's not some nebulous thing out there. It's, God has these very tangible, real things that he wants to give us, but we've got to, in a sense, reach through the spiritual world and grab a hold of them and bring them into our life. Because James then ends this passage by saying, why would this person not suppose that he would receive anything from the Lord? Because the Lord honors and responds to faith. Without faith, the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible to please God. And James is saying, a person who is without faith or who is doubting the character of God is a double-minded individual. Literally, two spirits, two souls. Jekyll and Hyde. Do I really believe this about God or not? That's why God calls us to be a people of strong convictions. We are firm in our faith. We know this about God. We believe this about God. We trust this about God. Therefore, when we go to God, we grab a hold of God, knowing that we're going to receive these things from the Lord. There is no doubt because we know him and we've learned by our personal time with him and by getting more acquainted with him that this is who our God is and we have no doubt about it, but we also have no doubt as to where our heart is and where our value is and that we are all in with God and God, yes, we want what you want, God, not what we want. Not my will, but yours be done. Because James ends this passage by saying, When we are double-minded, when we're like the people that Elijah talked to, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? Or the people of Joshua, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. I mean, this problem has been in existence in the people of God even forever. Sometimes we're just so vacillating and just so wavering back and forth, and God wants us to be rock solid, even in our own hearts of how we feel about him, which is why he told the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. And here's the evidence, the externals of how we know that we're a two-souled or two-spirited individual because we are unstable in all our ways. There's an instability. There's a restlessness. There's a wandering. It's sort of like hanging in a state of suspension, not here, not there. In fact, it's a very interesting word. It was a word that was used about to describe the planets, even in the ancient times, that they saw how they rotated and went around. How they just kept, they never, they never stayed in place. They just kept seeing them doing this and. And that's what, in their minds, that was a picture of instability is. They, they never stay in one, they're, they're just restless. They're, stay, they're wandering. That's describing a person who's double-minded. And God says, I don't want my people to be double-minded about me or about how they feel about me. Especially when we're dealing in tough times and trials and stuff, We need to know our God, and we need to be all in with our God. Otherwise, the trial themselves will probably not benefit us. We could maybe even become bitter and disillusioned and discouraged during the trial. But James is calling us out here tonight. He's saying our values determine our evaluations, And he's saying, let's be a people of God, Jew and Gentile, both, that value the Lord and what the Lord wants to do in our life and to trust the Lord that even in these trials that we go through in life, God can produce wonderful, beneficial, profitable things in our life that can make us more like Jesus Christ. Hold on to that, he says. And when you and I need that spiritual insight to be able to continue to see things from God's perspective, James says, ask, and God will pour it into your life because he wants you and I to see everything in life from a top-down perspective. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that all those years that James... was growing up in the same home with Jesus, that, Lord, even though he didn't believe in you at that time, those days, those weeks, those months, those years were not wasted. You were making an impression upon this dear man, even as a young boy. And one day when James got to that place in his life where he opened up his heart to you, He didn't start from zero, and no one does. God, I pray tonight that the insight that James, our Lord's brother, received from growing up with you that he wants to pass on to us, Lord, that it would truly penetrate our hearts and minds. That God, we would go from this passage tonight thinking about our thinking, thinking about our asking, and even thinking about our receiving, God. Each of us is going through trials right now in our life. And I pray, God, that we would respond as you want us to, knowing that we will be stronger and better and more like our Savior Jesus every day we allow that trial to produce that perfect effect in our life. God, thank you for even making the trials and hard times of life purposeful in your children. Thank you, God, for making even the painful times of life profitable for your children, God. What a God you are. We thank you, God, for watching over us and giving us everything we need, God, to endure and to persevere. Keep us going, God. Give us that staying power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight. God bless. We'll see you next week.